Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. I'm joined on the podcast today by the writer and activist Simon Hill. He has written a feature for this week's Church Times, which argues that activism is a core Christian concept. Simon's most recent book is The Peace Protesters, a history of modern day war resistance. In a review of the book in the Church Times, the Reverend Fraser Dyer described it as a richly detailed and thoroughly readable history of the past 40 years of peace protest in the UK. The book is published by Pen and Sword and is available from the Church Times bookshop. Follow the link in the episode notes. Simon, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting me. Can I start by asking about the morning of the 11th of September 2022, which which turned out to be a very significant and memorable day. Could you say what what happened that day? Yeah, sure. So um, I didn't know at the beginning of the day that it was going to be a a memorable day for me. I went to church as usual in Oxford to to New Road Baptist Church. And as uh, I came out, the uh, streets in central Oxford were pretty crowded because roads had been closed for the procession and proclamation uh, of a new king. And this happened in a number of cities and towns around the country that there's there's an official proclamation. Uh, It's it's all a bit medieval. Um, I think most people in town were there for shopping, going to the pub, going to church, whatever. There was a lot of confusion as to why things were closed. Some people, of course, had come to hear the proclamation. But with roads being closed, I struggled to to find my way through. And eventually I uh, was near the back of the crowd when the proclamation uh, was read out. And the beginning of the proclamation was uh, about the the death of the previous monarch. And although I'm a, I'm a Republican and a, an, an opponent of monarchy, uh, of course, I wouldn't uh, object to to an act of grief, an act of mourning, and I I, I I I stood still and remained silent while while that was that was read out. Then it came to declaring that Charles was our rightful liege lord and our only king. And at this point, I, I did object. I found the whole thing hard to stomach. Um, the idea that in the twenty first century we have a head of state announced by uh, some people in uh, antiquated costumes standing on a platform and telling us to obey our rightful liege lord. You know, a liege lord is a medieval idea about somebody who requires our submission and obedience. Um, and also as a Christian, uh, Charles is not my my only king. Uh, Jesus is my king. Now, I appreciate that uh, most listeners uh, to this podcast are probably Christians and they'll have a range of views about monarchy. But even those who uh, believe in in monarchy might struggle with the idea of Charles as our only king um, for us as uh, as Christians. So I did object. I called out who elected him to the back of the crowd. I doubt most people heard me. A couple of people told me to shut up. I said a head of state is being imposed without our consent. And I'd probably have left it there, to be honest. I'd probably have left it there and walked home. But um at that point, three security guards appeared, stood right in front of me, uh, told me to be uh, to be quiet. I I objected. I uh, made another couple of comments about uh, not bowing down to 
to our fellow human beings. And um, before I knew it, the police had charged in. Well, the security guards started to push me backwards. Uh, they assaulted me effectively. Then the police charged in. Uh, I was arrested and handcuffed and put in the back of a police van. The police gave me contradictory information about which law I'd been arrested under. I was eventually told I was being arrested under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act. Uh, but then later that day, the police told the media I'd been arrested under the Public Order Act in 1986. So it felt like, you know, rather an arbitrary arrest. I mean, in a, in a democratic society, you know, the police should know why they're doing something. You know, people should be told why they're being arrested, clearly. I was released. I was later called back in for an interview. I was charged with breaching the Public Order Act. It was only a few days before Christmas, three months after the incident, that the police informed me I was being charged and I'm being caught in January. Uh, but then on the 5th of January, the Crown Prosecution Service uh, dropped the charges, saying there wasn't a realistic prospect of a conviction, or as I would put it, I hadn't committed a crime. Mm-hmm. And then what was that like, though, those those months between that day and finding out the decision? It was that source of a lot of a lot of anxiety did you receive much support from from others yeah it was a very strange time really i have been arrested before when engaged in non-violent direct action against the arms trade uh for example in 2013 along with some some other christians i knelt in prayer to the gates of the london arms fair to block the entrance and while i i never think it was right that i was arrested i wasn't surprised to be arrested whereas this time I was gobsmacked. I'd just said a couple of sentences in the street. I didn't think I was naive about the police behaviour, but I was really taken aback. But I was amazed with the level of media interest and social media interest. And I, I'm very conscious most people who are unfairly arrested, you know, don't receive that level of media interest. I'm quite privileged in in, in many ways. Uh, so, you know, I've tried to use that to say it isn't about me it's about all our rights to free expression all our rights to freedom from from unfair arrest but i did receive thousands uh, of supportive messages from people who agreed with me and from people who didn't agree with me about monarchy but defended my right to to free speech um from christians and uh people of other faiths and, and of none um, I received some messages disagreeing or objecting, but willing to have a constructive discussion, which is fine. I tried to have, I tried to do that. But of course, I received some abusive messages as well, some of which were just sort of random uh, swear word insults on Twitter. Uh, some said I should be hanged for treason. Um, Andrew Schrader, a Conservative councillor in Basildon, tweeted that I should be sent to the Tower of London. I don't know if he wants me to pay the entrance fee to get in and look around uh, or whether I get in for free. But anyway, there we go. Although I had many supportive messages from Christians, I also had uh, the odd message telling me that kings were appointed by God and that I was going against God's will. And with some very simplistic interpretations of some rather selective passages of of scripture. Um, And I say some of those I could actually engage in discussion with, but some of them were just sort of ranty and insulting. But I have been swept away with the level of support I've had. I've been really impressed and really moved and humbled by by all that. I think one of the really difficult things was when I was interviewed by the police, I, I was accused of doing something that I definitely hadn't done. And I was... Uh, worried about being charged with a more serious and imprisonable offence. So that caused me quite a bit of worry. Uh, Obviously, I was relieved when 
in some ways relieved when I was only charged with the Public Order Act, but more relieved when the when the charges were dropped. But the the fact remains, it isn't just me. Other anti-monarchy protesters have been arrested or harassed or intimidated by the police for very minor forms of protest, which should worry not only Republicans, but but anyone who, who wants to freely express their opinion. Um, but one of the interesting things for me is the amount of discussion it generated in some quarters about Christianity and, and activism and Christianity and monarchy. And um, that led, you know, non-Christians getting in touch with me, asking me about about that and my understanding of that. So uh, it really gave me an opportunity to share my share my faith in Jesus in, in perhaps uh, some, some unexpected uh, settings. So um, I, I, I'm very grateful for that as well. Sure. Maybe we could explore that a little bit. I mean, it's hard to sum up in the, in the time we have, but could you give us a brief um, insight into how your Christian faith informs and inspires your activism and perhaps whether it gives you any resilience in, when, in the face of opposition? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I seek to root my life in Jesus. And of course, I, I fail all the time, as we all do, as sinful, fallible human beings and God in his grace forgives us and guides us when we are mistaken or when we sin. And of course, I make wrong decisions or bad decisions as much as, as anybody else does. But ultimately, I seek to return to the to the gospel, to the faith of Jesus, which is you know, revealed in the New Testament very clearly, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, as being rooted in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an alternative to the kingdoms and structures and systems of this world, to the to the domination systems, as the theologian Walter Wink puts it. And ultimately, the kingdom of God, the kingdom rooted in love and justice, will triumph over the worship of mammon and of Mars, of, of money and, 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 and might. And um, that perhaps keeps me going. I think, as I say, I'm inspired by... To some extent, the, the 17th century Christian movements that proclaimed the relevance of the gospel to everyday life and objected to monarchy and inequality and um, so on, on the basis that, that God had, had created us all as human beings equal in his sight and in his love, who were designed to love each other and to bow down only to God. You know, Jared Wynne Stanley, the great 17th century theologian, you know, said that God made the world to be a common treasury. Not one word was spoken in the beginning that one branch of mankind should bow down to another. And you know, very much his thinking was was rooted in um in in the Bible and in and in, in, and in Christ. So I, I struggle to seek God's guidance. I make mistakes all the time. But I do think that you know, if we look at the New Testament, if we look at the Bible as a whole, there are hundreds of examples of people defying authority. You know, we can see the Hebrew midwives uh, defying the Pharaoh, deceiving the Pharaoh even. At first, when monarchy is mentioned in, in, in the books of Samuel, it's, you know, Samuel's very negative about it. You know, it's, it sees it as a rejection of God. OK, later we get the more positive images of God blessing David and Solomon and anointing them. But even there, even there, that doesn't mean you can't criticise that. We have Nathan standing up to David, Nathan calling the king a murderer to his face. You know, the idea, therefore, that the Bible teaches us not to criticise monarchs is 
is bizarre to me. People will quote that passage from Romans 13 in which Paul says that rulers have a legitimate purpose, which I, I agree they do. But Paul never said that that meant you should criticize them or that that meant you uh, should do everything they say. Paul was undermining the Roman emperor every day because people were supposed to worship the Roman emperor. And Paul was proclaiming Christ and therefore turning people away from worshiping the Roman emperor. If Paul had been so subservient to the Roman imperial authorities, they wouldn't. his life wouldn't have ended by being executed by them in Rome. So, you know, people just quoting those first few verses from Romans 13 as if that meant Christians should never engage in civil disobedience or should never break the law. Not that I did break the law, I hasten to add, mm. um, but um, or that Christians should never criticise those in authority is just such a sort of willful not being able to see the wood for the trees and that, you know, you're ignoring the rest of the Bible. And I'm, I, I am particularly reminded of Philip Berrigan, the US Catholic priest, Jesuit priest, who said the resurrection is the ultimate example of civil disobedience. When you're executed by the state, you're supposed to stay dead. And I, you know, obviously it's a joke, but actually there's a, there's a point there that the power of Jesus, that God's power manifested in the resurrection was greater than the power of the Roman Empire, greater than the power, the powers of this world. But having said that, of course, what I did in September was not civil disobedience. It was entirely lawful, as I would have argued in court if it had come to court. And we're in a dangerous place if we can't express a dissenting opinion in the street you know, I didn't swear, I didn't encourage hatred, I didn't encourage violence, I didn't insult Charles Windsor personally or anyone else personally. Um, if you can't express an opinion in the street uh, without being arrested, then I think that is something that should worry all of us, whatever our views on on, on monarchy or religion or anything else. I think we could talk about your book because that is more focused on civil disobedience, isn't it? But mm. non-violent direct action particularly in the context of um, protesting against warfare and arms dealing and things sure. like that. So I asked first why you, know, why, why you decided to write the book. It's, it's a more recent history than perhaps others. Is, was there a space for that needed, do you think, to tell some of those stories that perhaps weren't known about enough? Yeah, I think peace activism really has been going on a long time. And as much as you can distinguish peace activism from other forms of activism, I'd say, you can identify that trend from the First World War onwards. I teach history for the Workers' Educational Association. I teach a course on the peace movement in World War I. Uh, I edited the writings of World War I pacifists for, for a Quaker online project a few years ago. But having been involved in peace activism myself much more recently, I'm aware there's more recent stories not being told. And when I talked to Pen and Sword, the publisher, originally... I was thinking of an earlier period to write about. But they said there's so much that's not been written more recently. So in the early 80s, with Greenham Common and so on, we saw a rise in direct action against war and nuclear weapons. And the Falklands War, opposition to the Falklands War, there's been very little written about it. There's been writings against the Falklands War, but not writings from a historian mm -hmm. about the opposition to the Falklands War as a historical movement or not many so it was intriguing to go through archives and find out opposition that i was unaware of as i was only only a child at the time of the falklands war 
And then, of course, that led into more recent uh, opposition to the arms trade, particularly from the 90s onwards. There's the whole question of the opposition to the Iraq war and how that failed to stop Britain's involvement, despite having the support, you know, despite the majority of the public not supporting the war. So being able to bring some of those stories together um, in a book that I hope is engaging to read, but also, you know, it's not an academic book, but I hope it will be useful to to research as, uh, as well by bringing some material together. I wanted to inspire people, but I also wanted to ask some difficult questions about why some things hadn't worked or what what does or doesn't work. And it was really fascinating being able to interview a range of people, look through archives and so on about campaigns, some of which I'd been involved in, uh, some of which were, you know, as I say, when I was a child, but all of which I think are probably more complicated than is um, sometimes appreciated in as much as they're talked about at all, because there were lots of stories there that haven't really had much mainstream discussion, including some that we know about only because of government documents that have been released in the last few years, but relate to things going on in the 80s and 90s and so on. We, we run an extract at, at the end of your piece in the paper mm. um, from the book, um, specifically about the, the Wharton women. So, say a bit about them and what, what, what they did. Yeah, sure. So uh, from the 80s, a movement emerged called the Plowshares Movement. The idea was to damage or uh, as, as those involved would say, disarm weapons. It, it, it emerged in the, the US initially based on the notion of swords into plowshares. Within the plowshares movement, there's some disagreement or at least difference of emphasis about whether you're disarming the weapon as a symbolic act or because you're actually practically trying to stop the weapon being used. Uh, and the British part of the movement has tended to go for the, the latter of those two, as well as seeing the symbolism. In 1996, uh, four women, Andrea Needham, Angie Zelta, uh, Joe Blackman and Lotta Cronlid, were involved in disarming a plane, uh, BAE Wharton in Lancashire, uh, that was destined to be sent to Indonesia, uh, Indonesian forces at that point were routinely and deliberately bombing civilians in East Timor. And the idea was that destroying the plane would possibly save some lives in East Timor, as well as drawing the British people's attention to the issue. It was a really remarkable event. The four of them prepared for it for ages. They managed to cut through the fence and disarm the plane and then waited there for BAE security to turn up and um, find them. But BAE security didn't turn up. You know, they prepared for all sorts of scenarios. The one scenario they hadn't prepared for was that nobody would find them. So they ended up having to make phone calls to let people know what they were doing. And they were charged. They were refused bail. They were imprisoned for six months. And at the end of those six months, they were put on trial uh, for criminal damage. And they pled not guilty because what would be criminal damage can sometimes be allowed in certain if there are certain excuses so for example if i broke down your front door uh, that would be criminal damage if your house was on fire and i broke down your front door to rescue you uh, that would not be so on the same basis uh, they argued that it was to to rescue people who were who were being killed in east timor and the jury accepted this and they were found not guilty and they went from, you know, in the morning they were in prison. 
expecting to be sentenced to several years in prison that day in the evening they were in television studios being interviewed there was there was no space for any normal life in between these two very unusual events so it was extraordinary for them and of course they were they were smeared in certain certain newspapers uh they were you know the whole case was misrepresented in places people were saying the jury was ignoring the law the jury was not ignoring the law they'd accepted the legal defense that the women had put that they'd not committed a crime and i was 19 when that happened in 1996 and i just remember hearing about it on the news and i just remember being full of awe and um i was just so impressed by what these women had done i just couldn't imagine having the confidence to do such a thing and i was just so inspired as a as a teenage pacifist by hearing what they'd done and hearing what the what the jury had done and you know that's just an example of one of the sort of stories i tell in the book now that story's been told before andrea needham one of the women has written a whole book about it herself which is brilliant i really recommend it. it's called the hammer blow um but there's other stories in the book that i think have have had less attention but all of them are both important in themselves but really interesting and important not to overlook uh so i hope that i hope they interest and inspire uh, people who who choose to read my book and perhaps finally what, what effect do you hope the book has on people do you hope it inspires people to to become activists or or to take non-violent direct action and um, particularly christians or is it more to just inform them and to sort of address some of the ignorance that there might be about about this well, all those things, really. I um, I have mixed feelings about the word activist because people call me an activist. You know, I never decided to become an activist. I just, uh, I just, I, I think my parents were not particularly political in the narrow sense of the word, uh, but they did teach me to question authority and not just accept something because it was the norm. You know, I questioned rules and unfair punishments when I was at school. And I discovered that if you carry on doing that as an adult, people call you an activist. I, I think activism just means acting on your beliefs, acting on your values in your everyday life and perhaps in terms of campaigning. You know, people listening to this who give a monthly donation to Amnesty International are activists. Anyone listening to this who helps out a food bank is an activist, who's ever signed a petition is an activist. All Christians really aspire to be activists and that we aspire to act on on what we believe in so it's not so much about people becoming activists because i don't like to suggest that that people aren't although i hope it might inspire people to get involved in campaigning on peace but also to think about what the most effective way of campaigning is because we have to be honest a lot of the peace campaigns i've looked at failed and i've tried to discuss why and it's ironic that I, I, I've now been in the media for getting arrested, a very spontaneous sort of protest, because I'll spend a lot of time talking about how we need to think about being effective in our campaigns. We need to live out our values in daily life. But in terms of a campaign, you know, what makes it effective? What, what can we do? So if it inspires people to think about that, if it inspires people to get more involved in campaigning um, or to act more readily in their daily lives, um, that'd be great if it helps people consider issues about peace and the ethics around it. Um, I'd be very pleased if it's useful for researchers and academics and students. I, again, I'd be pleased. That's not my main motivation, but 
particularly some of the more regional research around the Falklands War, for example, and around Iraq, I, I, I hope will be useful. And while it's not just about Christian peace activists, there's a lot of Christian peace activists in it. And I, I hope on the one hand, it will encourage Christians to see how our faith links with peace and with activism. But I actually hope it will encourage people of other faiths and of none to see how much Christians have had the faith to act on what, on a belief in peace, to engage in active nonviolence, engage in direct action. And in a society in which church leaders seem to be giving the impression that the main purpose of the church is to be some sort of bastion of homophobia, I think it's really important that people hear about Christians who, you know, the many, many Christians of different backgrounds and different uh, theologies and denominations uh, who are actively engaged alongside people of other faiths and none in, in trying to improve the world around them. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.